This is a Danger Entertainment Podcast. DangerEntertainment.net Danger Entertainment Podcast Network. Hey, hooligans, this is Michael. This is Michelle. This is Jeremy. From Who the What Now? The show about... Strange stories from the internet. And Bigfoot came over and beat his ass. Oh my god. <laughs> he like knocked him around a little bit and he just kind of went limp and Bigfoot left. Pop culture. John, John Fod. Van Clam. <laughs> John Fod Van Clam gonna... was supposed to be the alien in Predator. Mm-hmm. And like did like a jump splits and like ended up with his like batch right in the dude's face. <laughs> that, that's his like, move. Can we get the park? In our crazy lives. I'm like, oh, there's a cat on my back. And then all of a sudden I feel something. I feel a furry paw go down my ass crack. <laughs> Just slide right down my ass crack. I was like, what are you doing? You can catch us on all your favorite podcast applications. Spotify. iTunes. Libsyn. iHeartRadio. Stitcher. Your mamas. <laughs> and wherever else you find. You, you, they have quality podcasts. <laughs> so don't miss out on the next Who the What Now? The following production is part of the We Be Geeks Podcast Collective. Microphones and headphones provided by CAD Audio. CAD Audio, expression through innovation. (laughs) Produced with podcasting gear from Tascam, including the Tascam Mini Studio. Trust your audio to Tascam. Sound thinking. Crisis for the geek kind. Top geek officials admit they underestimated the hipster's defense capability. Geeks from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. They're doing their part. Are you? Join Weeby Geeks and the Geek Revolution and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. Want to know more? Do not attempt to adjust your device. This is a streaming freedom And it is the only free voice left in the Geek Revolution. And welcome to another episode of Weeby Geeks. It is the Dashing Duo, Derek and myself, Mike. And I don't know about you, Derek, but I am so excited. I'm excited anytime we have a guest on, but I'm really excited tonight because this guest is a whole different breed of guest. And uh, and it's awesome. Uh, on the line with us, uh, promoting his film, The Mercenary, is Dominique Vanden- Vandenberg. I got that correct. Yes? Yes, sir. I'm not going to be able to get used to that either I, I i love the respect i would be doing the same thing as how i was raised um so you you had said before show we could we were more than happy to call you dom during show um tell us a little bit about the mercenary uh we had a chance to see it and we both love the film well the mercenary is really my passion project you know the the, the character uh, max that is the lead guy the lead character in the mercenary <clears throat> i would say was born over a decade ago in a graphic novel. I was an executive member at Magic Leap Studios, which is an AR VR company. And the head of the studio asked me while they were developing the technology for the AR VR, he says, Dom, can you come up with a cool story for a comic book? And uh, I created a a graphic novel called Vive la Mort, which in French means long long live death. It's a saying that we use in the French Foreign Legion in, in real life. 
And I created that character in that graphic novel, but then when Magic Leap grew bigger and bigger and bigger, and people started investing hundreds of millions of dollars into the company, like companies like Google and Alibaba and such, the company became very politically correct, and the graphic novel was super violent, had sexual content, all of that stuff. So I realized those guys there were never going to pick that graphic novel up. And I decided to take the Max character, which was one of the characters in the graphic novel, and uh, create this indie film that I did, pretty much funding it myself with my own savings and had a couple co-producers like my longtime friend Don Hollingshead and a few other people that, that came on board that believed in me, that thought, you know, I could do this. Okay. Well, let, let me pose this question real quick before we carry through with the movie. Have you ever thought about with your graphic novel going someplace like Indiegogo or GoFundMe or Kickstarter and actually try and self-publish it yourself? Uh, to be honest with you, I, I don't really know much about those kind of groups and stuff like that. And self-publishing, if I, I did the first uh, comic myself, but it would cost a lot of money and you're never sure it's going to get picked up, you know, or do well. I'm, I'm planning on uh, on publishing a poetry book uh, about oh, wow. poetry that I write, you know, about my time in the Foreign Legion, stuff like that, my time as an independent soldier. We can't hear you, Mike. Sorry, I had to let the dog back in. I was trying to keep being bleed through the microphone. Um, after show, I've got a name. And I'll have to find their contact info about someone who may be able to help you get the book published. It's it's a really cool character, the Max character. He's he's swap what I refer to as the character is there called. You know, he's a mercenary in, in the graphic novel too, and uh, he's a passenger. He's a person that when he gets killed, he can travel back on a person that is about to die's lifeline and come back into this world. Oh, and wow. because yeah, because one he you know he, he he keeps on joining the foreign legion over and over again because he's like an immortal almost when he gets killed. You know, he can travel back on an old lady or a drug addict on someone that is about to die's lifeline back to this world. And even over the many years that he's alive, he has a family, but his wife dies, his kids get old, they all die, and he keeps on rejoining the Foreign Legion. So it starts off from Cameroon days in the 1800s until modern days. I am, I am definitely putting you in touch with a friend of ours. So I think this would be a great book for them. Uh, and they're an upstart uh, small independent comic book company as well, but he's well established in the industry. Right. Um, he's got some great artists to work with him that probably do some great work with your with your book. Because just hearing you talk about it, I want this book. It, <laughs> I really cool, want to see it. It's a cool character. And, and and in the movie, when Max gets his throat cut, when, when Jesse and I created the original synopsis, from that point on, uh, most people might not notice it in the movie, but we don't really know if Max is dead or not. Maybe all the stuff that after that moment when he gets his throat cut in the film, maybe all of that is something that is in his mind or he's going to prerogatory to, to, to hell, you know, and and all of the, mm. the stuff after the throat cutting. Maybe it's all when he's dying, when the DMT goes into the system and that's all stuff that he sees. 
while he's dying. Oh, wow. Never in, 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 that way. Yeah. And then in the mercy. Yeah, that adds a whole new la- layer to it. Yeah. That's why we shot these moments of him walking to the, like, burned-out landscape. And that's really where right. he could be in hell, you know, walking to hell. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm gonna, I love I'm gonna that. Have, yeah. I'm gonna have to ask. Uh, usually, I save this for a little later, and I'm gonna ask it again later. When does this film become available? Uh, the film became available on VOD in America January seventh on all VOD, pretty okay. much Amazon, iTunes. Uh, in Europe, in the UK, it's on iTunes and, and a bunch of other places. And I, I'm not sure yet, but it's about to be released in Japan and South Korea. And there, they were they were gonna give it a limited theatrical. I heard. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Now, what, yeah. about, what about on, like, DVD or Blu-ray? Uh, it's on DVD at all the Walmarts. It's a Blu-ray. You know, you can get it anywhere on DVD. You can buy it on the Internet, too. Excellent. I, I'm going to have to get a copy now. I I, it, I was that impressed. It really was a good movie. Yeah. And and uh, I thought you did a great job, too. Uh, um, I really I really liked the character a lot. And um, the way you played him was really good, really interesting. And... Yeah, I just I just thoroughly enjoyed the movie. Thank you, sir. I, I this means so much to me. It was so difficult to to get this off the ground uh, before Jesse Johnson became available because Jesse was directing back to back movies at the time. He's a longtime friend, but I had a different director that was attached to it, and that went on for about two years, and we went to three different scripts. You know. Draining on and on and on, and then Jesse finally became available, and I said, "Jess, it, could could you do direct this film with me? Because he has all the experience and the connections right. and all of that." And I told, "I know you're you moved up from the place we were in the beginning because I uh, executive produced Jesse's first film, The Honorable. I funded that movie too with money that I made as an independent soldier. We're talking wow. not 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 working somewhere, you know." Uh, uh, you know, working, pay, paying with blood, sweat, and tears. And I took that money, and even the two Harleys, when I first came to America, I had this Vietnam veteran that built two Harleys for me. He was a hell's angel, too. I had uh, to finish the movie. I had to bring my two Harleys to a pawn shop to get the extra money to finish the first film. So that's what found the Jesse, G- Jesse V. Johnson's first feature film. And Jesse has come a long way since then, and he's an established director now, and soon he will be doing bigger and bigger movies, I know. And I asked him, Jesse, can you do this for me as an old friend? Can you do a movie with a nobody like myself one more time, you know, and, and, and because this is my passion project. And he said, I'll do this for you, Don. And uh, we started filming the movie after we, we created a synopsis and then had another guy write the script for us, uh, David Fulmore. And uh, we did one day of filming that was like a tester, which was the mosque scene. We shot that in one day. And then Jesse had to go off to Thailand yeah, because he got Triple Threat, the Tony Jaa Ikuyo-Ace movie. Mm. And uh, then he had to go off to Thailand for many months. And he says, Dom, can you come out to Thailand, play a small part in the movie? And then when we get back from Thailand, we can finish off The Mercenary, which was originally called Legion Max. Well, the original synopsis was called The Mercenary. Then I called it Legion Max. But then the Uncore, the distribution company in the United States, they thought American people would think it's a Roman film. So they decided to go back to the original title that I call it as a synopsis, which was The Mercenary instead of Legion Max. Okay. But it was it was a long, long, hard road, so to say. And the, the initial, the, the shooting that we did after the one-day tester shoot was only 16 days. 
because oh, we, wow. we were on a very, very limited oh. budget. You know, so it was very, very hard to get this movie off. So with, with the story, how much of your own personal experience um, is potentially portrayed? Well, I'm not going to say potentially. How much of your personal experience is, is evoked into this film? The, the characters, like the character that Louis played, he that was a character that reminded me of a guy that I worked with as, a, as an independent soldier in Yugoslavia. Some of the other characters was loosely, I take little bits and pieces from, from people that I met over the years. And the Max character itself has a, a lot of myself in it because I'm a person, I have social anxiety a lot. I don't like to talk to people. Like when I go to the grocery store by myself, I break out in a sweat. You know, I was really fucked up after Yugoslavia. That's why for two years I, I went to live in a boxing camp in Thailand, in Northern Thailand, before coming to the United States. Because my 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 head wasn't in the right place. I was you know I wouldn't say hearing voices, but I definitely had a demon in me that gave me a strange but controlled insanity that sometimes would go overboard, so to say. And that's why I, when I stopped working as an independent soldier, being in Thailand for for over two years and living in a boxing camp, the real experience, not like guys do today. They go there and pay a trainer a little bit of money to hit the pads in the bag. And then at night, they go to an air-conditioned room and sleep in the hotel. It was really sleeping in the camp on the mosquito nets with a bunch of other guys in the same room with no air conditioning. You had one bucket to wash your ass when you take a shit because the toilet is a hole in the ground. And then you have another bucket to wash yourself and your clothes with. It was a real experience. And uh, when I I went back to Thailand after Yugoslavia because on, on my first leave from the Legion, I had gone to Thailand to fight in a Burmese boxing match. Like a bare, It's like bare-knuckle Thai boxing. And the guys that had set it up for me, uh, Sensei Smith, which is a Dutch uh, Kyokushin guy and kickboxer, who has been deceased in 2005, I think in 2006 he died, and Roberts, who was a South African judoka, they set the fight up for me. And I in- instantly liked Thailand. Every leaf after the first leaf that I had, I usually would go back either to Thailand or to Burma. To, to, in Burma, I would stay with the Karen Hill tribes. That, that they fight the Burmese government and I would train the young soldiers there on how to build bombs and snipe officers and stuff like that. Yeah. Wow. So, and then when I finally, when I, when I, after Thailand, when I came to the United States, uh, I uh, lived at the YMCA for a little bit. And uh, after a while, I got a room, I, uh, I rented a room in the hood. And when I was at that time, I had been hired by Benny the Jet Urquides as a sparring partner for his top fighters at, at the then Jet Center that was on Friar Street. And Benny was coming out of retirement to, to fight a uh, Japanese kickboxer called Tagami. Benny started taking me up to Big Bear uh, to his fight camp to get his guys ready and help them with the tight clinch kicks and stuff like that. So <clears throat> meanwhile, I found the place where I rented a room and one of the guys at the gym told me, he says, Dom, Dom, you know, that place where you're living is a really bad place. I'm like, oh, really? He goes, yeah, you live in the hood, man. And I had never heard that word, the hood, because in Europe, bad neighborhoods, we call them ghettos, right? Yep. And I'm like, oh, the hood, okay. And then I realized when the room was really cheap and stuff. When I went there in the daytime, I could see that I was the only white dude in that area. <laughs> and that guys were selling crack at like seven at night, right in front of the place that I was living, you know. 
Oh, wow. So, oh, this, this is a bad neighborhood. But still, even the bad neighborhoods here in America, compared to the toilets that I visited with the Legion, it's like Disneyland compared to most of the African continent and other places that I was with the Legion. Wow. So anyhow, while I was working uh, at the jet center, a lady came there and, and they were looking for fighters. And she asked one of the guys at the gym, who's the guy with the shaved head? with all the scars on his body and, and what looks like bullet holes in his back. And the guy said, oh, that's Dom. That's a guy that, you know, European guy that just came in from Thailand and, and he's an ex-Foreign Legion guy. And uh, the lady said, can you send that guy in to come and read for one of the fighter parts in Mortal Kombat? And I went to the audition and I got cast as one of the small parts in Mortal Kombat. And that's how, that's where I met Jesse Johnson. He was the second AD in Mortal Kombat. And from then on, we became friends because he knew so much about military and mercenaries and stuff like that. We clicked instantly. And since then, we've been doing projects together. Oh, wow. How did you come up with uh, your casting? Because uh, I know, like, Carmen uh, has got a very extensive career on his own um, mm -hmm. with working with Clint Eastwood and Travolta and... This this lady, uh, Darren, the casting lady that we had for the movie, she found Carmen literally, I would say, two or three days before we, we began filming. We had two other people in mind for that part, actually. And we got Carmen, and instantly when I, when I met him the first time, I'm like, this guy is Father Elias. His energy, his demeanor, just his look, too, but everything. He said, this is the guy to play Father Elias. Mm. Your your casting was was brilliant. Um, yeah, he was good. How, so, did you use talent agents to come up with the rest of the casting, or are some of these people that you worked with in the past that Jesse knew a lot of people, and then this lady Darren, the casting lady that we used, she, she found uh, Jesse had just worked with Louis Mandalore on a movie called uh, The Debt Collector, and f funnily enough, when Jesse mentioned Louis Mandalore to me. I met uh, Louis 20 years ago at the YMCA, funnily enough. Oh, wow. So I, I knew Louis because I met him when he first came to the United States, and I met his brother Costas, too. And I had actually worked and actually hired his brother Costas in a movie called Beowulf that I was the fight coordinator on. And uh, I, I knew <laughs> Louis and Costas for, for many years back, too. Louis, by the way, was very generous on letting me shine. You know, he's such a... He's such a professional actor, but he gave me so much leeway on making me look better. He was very generous in all of the scenes that we did together. And he understood the Max character, too. I, I, I think some of the younger actors, when I was doing scenes with them, and I don't talk a lot in a lot of the scenes, I, mm. I think it confused them. <laughs> because in acting class, you learn how to do monologues and big scenes and all that stuff. You want to talk right. a lot. I wanted to create a character that is the opposite. That is like, like I said, like the heroes that I grew up with, that doesn't talk a lot. And oh. I studied a lot of Japanese films for this character. I, I watched a movie called Sword of Doom by director Kihachi Okamoto. And the lead guy in it uh, that plays... Rino Suki, I guess the name was, Tatsuo Nakadai was the lead actor that played that character in Sword of Doom. And I studied his body language and the stillness right before he goes into a fight scene. 
Right. And I also studied uh, a movie that I've watched many, many times since I was a kid, Yo Jimbo by Akira Kurosawa. Yeah. I, I yes. studied the explosiveness <clears throat> of Toshiro Mifuni before he's about to chop people up and, st- and stuff. I watched how he moved and the, when he goes from stillness to extreme speed when he kills people. And I, I based the Max character really with all these different characters, put them together with a little bit of who I am, this kind of guy that doesn't like to talk a lot. I, I loved how you start off the movie. Max is somewhat talkative. Mm-hmm. And, and then the one incident where you go and do the rescue, mm-hmm. because you realize, um, to me, it almost felt like it, it was almost a nod to Platoon. Mm-hmm. If you're throwing up, because we get that same thing with uh, William Defoe's character going off the, the deep end. Brilliant, uh, Derek. That, you know, here's one of your partners going off the deep end and not doing what, what the team was, was built to do. Right. Taking his own liberties, and you go and do the rescue and then end up the throat cut. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved how you used the throat cut to, to now make yourself more of that solemn, silent character. And it's not, yeah, until, it was... not until the clerk comes in right near the end that you start talking. Or no, mm-hmm. it's the two guys that come in to, to get Esther in yeah. church that you start talking. That it was, it was a great up. direction, yeah. When I served with the French Foreign Legion uh, to rep, and even after that as an independent, I found it to be that the most efficient and tough guys were quiet guys. They were unassuming. Uh, a lot of times they weren't big guys. And a lot of these guys that were the baddest killers that I worked with, they were very quiet people. They practiced a, a brand of stoicism that you don't see in Hollywood films today. In Hollywood films, when you have a Green Beret or a Navy SEAL or, or a real badass, they're, they're very homogenized and they talk nonstop because I, I guess that's what the actor likes because they like to be on the screen talking and doing their scenes and their monologues or they just right. don't know what the real thing is like. Right. Well, when, when I joined the Legion, the, the guys that were the most quiet were the guys that tended to do the best in basic training. And the big muscle guys that were going to be two rep commando and this and that and that. By three, four weeks into basic, those guys, they broke to pieces. Yeah. Well, they always say, oh. watch out for the quiet Interesting. ones. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there's a reason for that. And, uh, oh, yeah. And to hear you talk about this, with which we're, we're going to discuss the French Foreign Legion later, because I, I will openly admit you're the first person I've ever met who served in the Legion. Mm. Yeah, me too, uh, yeah. And I... I'm going to save some of my questions about that for later. Um, now, what made you decide for, for Notch to go after uh, Rob Zabnick, which I know him briefly from when he did Survivor. Mm-hmm. Um, what made you take a take a chance on, on a reality star uh, who had only done one other film prior? The, the character that he played, he, in a weird sort of re- reason, he remind remember the Highlander movies? Mm-hmm. The guy that played the character oh, yeah. that yep. stung to the nun and, and stuff like that in the church scene? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some reason, it wasn't necessarily the way what he looks like, but for some reason he reminded me of that character from the Highlander movie. And mm-hmm. the character that he plays that is raping the girl and the look, how he's like really tall guy. I'm like, this guy, the way he looks and everything, even... If he's performance is not you know, what we think it should be, 
he, he looks the part and his performance was great i thought he, okay. he became that character yeah. a very I good job i didn't realize it was him that you went you went after uh in that scene mm-hmm. i didn't realize it was him i thought it was uh the one that you end up killing before going in to see leclerc with your big final battle with leclerc mm-hmm. or, or is the, that the uh, hammerford the guy that plays the yeah. black guy that plays hammerford after hammerford oh rodriguez yes yeah. yeah, yeah. He was supposed to be that part originally, but we lost him on a TV show in the middle of shooting. And that's why, you know, Rob became that part. Okay. You know, we had to change that all, 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 all of that stuff. Mm. Wow. So what was... What was one of the more difficult parts you uh, difficult things you had with filming outside of the the financial or outside of the budget and, and time? Time, you know, because we we were sometimes shooting two units at the same time. Jesse Johnson was on one unit shooting a scene with the other actors, and I was on second unit shooting stuff with Malai Kim, who was my fight choreographer that that worked with me, and Luke Lafontaine. And uh, we would be shooting and the sun is going down and I have to run and change clothes and go to the first unit to shoot, shoot a scene there with Lewis. And then I had to run back and we were losing light in that scene. And like the fight scene by the river, yeah. uh, the night fight scene by, by the river yeah. in, in, uh, with the two black dudes with the machetes, that was shot in less than an hour, that whole sequence. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and, and during that, one of our cameras broke down. The blood pump, you know, the, the pump that sprays the blood, that, that uh, the pump broke down. So when I cut the guy in the neck in the end sequence, when the blood sprays out of his neck, that's him manipulating that with his hand, the stun guy. Oh, so God. he had to think about doing that because the pump sprays the blood out. It broke that pump right before that shot, the last shot. Oh, and uh, we set it up. So he had with his hand after I cut him in the neck, I told him, keep walking like the character in Seven Samurai that challenges the master when he gets cut. And the guy keeps walking before before he falls down. Right. I told the guy, I said, keep walking three, four paces or whatever until you where the water is and then squirt all the blood out and go down. And he nailed it on the first stake, you know? Very awesome. The stunt guys that, that we had is what made me look good. Because a lot of times actors will not give credit to the stunt guys, or, but a, lot of, a good stunt guy makes you look good, makes the scene. If you have stun guys that oh, play yeah. well, it's not going to work out, especially on a lower budget film like this with with limited time, where you're always racing against time. Mm. The scene, yeah, there was there was there was a lot of great stunt work in the movie. Yeah, the inside of the car where we use all the shooting. That was really gnarly because you're so confined, and we were shooting shotguns and everything in this really confined space. And, oh yeah, yeah. Because we were so rushed. Uh, you skip a lot of the security stuff, you know, that you shouldn't be doing. <laughs> hey, I understand that feeling. You know, being in the industry myself, um, now working in corporate entertainment, it's like there'd be things if that we would do that safety wants us to not do and they don't realize, well, we got to do it in order to get the show up and going. Right. And we know how to be safe doing it. Don't throw extra safeties in to make our job harder to do. Jesse is really good that way. He he takes risks. Well, when we shot the first film that we did together, we were shooting in the middle of the night in Los Angeles, fully automatic uh, assault AK-47s with blanks. 
And when the cop helicopter showed up, we would get the fuck out of there before the cop showed up. <laughs> we, we, would do, we would do stuff like that all the time, you know, without permits, without anything. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. So really, we, we, we learned the trade during guerrilla-style filmmaking, so to say. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Um, it is, yeah. So you, you mentioned you, you feel that everything that takes place in the church or with the two fathers uh, is in a pur- uh, purgatory realm. Yes. What, what roles do you see um, the fathers portraying in this purgatory with Max? I think at the moment that Max got his throat slit, he was turning to the other direction already. And a lot of people, whether it's at the end of their life or hardship or living in poverty, they tend to go towards religion. And I think in Max's brain, when he was getting his throat cut and the release of the DMT, he was seeing the priests and the church and all of that might have been imaginary in in his last moments of life. Okay, so this whole this whole um, I guess pretty much the last I, half I film is almost a redemption for Max. It's a redemption, yes. And that from that scene on, it's it's up to the viewer what he is naturally dead and he's going to all of this, or did the guy didn't cut his main artery and he ended up surviving, or he sewed himself back up, or, or that's up to the viewer to decide where he wants that character to go. See, until you mentioned purgatory, I never thought of it as Max is dead, and, and you still really don't even tell us Max is dead or not. You, st- as you said, you're leaving it up to us the viewers to make the decision which is, which is brilliant and max, i love how you're you're teasing us yeah that. i like that a lot so excuse me yeah max could be a passenger like the way he was born the character in the in the graphic novel where he travels back on let's say a heroin addict that that shoots up and overdoses in an alley that's about to die he travels back on that person's lifeline and then takes over his body that morphs into the max character or an old lady that is dying. So maybe in The Mercenary, Max is the same character, the passenger, that he was in the Vive la Mort graphic. Okay. And that's up to the viewer to decide where he wants that character to be. Yeah, I, I'm loving all this. I'm loving how... Uh, and, and it's not a bad thing, like I said, because I'm loving it. I'm loving how you're, you're not telling us definitely he's dead, he's not dead, and you're, you're forcing us to, to think more with the movie. And, it, and it's, it's brilliant. Cause originally, when, when I saw the film, I figured, okay, the priests happened to catch him, and he's still alive. But I can also see, too, because I, I do see a little bit of the um, scenery change where, okay, maybe he's not alive now that you were mentioning the purgatory. Um, so having to, I'm going to have to watch this again with the idea, okay, he's in purgatory now and, and see how I develop out of that and see, see if so I get that, any other message from it. That makes me think of the end of the movie when yeah. he goes off on his own. Um, and it makes you wonder, in that case, is, is he going off? Is he finally leaving purgatory or is he just going off to another uh, uh, trial test or See, there's I, some possibilities there? But I, I'm loving what, what Dom had mentioned before in, in regards to the Max character from, from the book is he's looking for that. Pa- he's walking off to head towards that passenger for his next return to, to the mortal life. 
Right. That's what I mean. And if if that is the case, then then that that makes it a whole different kind of thing. Yeah. As opposed to him just, you know, going on, on his merry way. I like that. Yeah. So what what was the um, not what was what is your your message with this film that, that you're trying to get out to, to the listeners or to, to the viewers? The message I would say is that everybody can redeem themselves no matter what you've done in your past. But the message of this film, of the end result of this film getting made, is also to any, anybody out there that has a dream, it's to follow your heart, create your vision, and learn how to turn dreams into reality by the actions you take in life, yeah? Because our lives are very short. And you will find purpose in life, and with it, true consciousness, and have the strength to turn your passions into action if you really live in the moment and go for it. Most people, they don't know, they think we're here forever, but we're not. You know, the meaning of life is, is beyond the scope of most people understanding because they are not living in the moment. They're on their phones. They're, they're busy with things. Right. They, they don't find self. And, and that's also the message from that film. Okay. Um, I kind of want to touch back. What, what made you decide to go from your time, uh, your military life, Mm-hmm. into acting. I, I always loved cinema since I was a little kid. I grew up in a small place in Belgium, in a little village where there was not much to do but street fights during the week. And, and, you know, there was just nothing to do. I escaped watching movies and going to the f- movie theater with my father or, or watching movies with my Uncle Pierre. You know, they took me away from the reality of what, what was really, I was growing up in a small little village. With, there was a, everyone knew everybody, kind of a lot of nice people, but it was too confined for me. I wanted to be out there in the world. I wanted to see what this world was all about. And I, like I said, I always loved cinema. I was making movies in my head sometimes in a trench with bullets flying over in the middle of the night when I was in the Legion. I was imagining how I would eventually make films and come to America. I knew this since I was a little kid. I, I, I visualized all the things that I'm doing now. And it, it, it certainly hasn't been easy, but I'm, I'm not a quitter. It, life is very short. You got to go for whatever you, you, you want to achieve in life. Because before you know, it'd be over. So you decided to make the jump into acting. What was your first film? Uh, the first film that I did wasn't really an acting part. I throw some punches and kicks and stuff. It was a Mortal Kombat. Okay. And and uh, then soon after that, I got barbed wire where I have a scene and a fight scene with Pamela Anderson. And then a lot of the lower budget movies where I play a little bit parts. And then just the grind. You go on and, and go to auditions and do all of that stuff. And more and more in between uh, small acting gigs, I would get into stunt work and, and fight choreography and coordinating. And, and that's why after working with Tim Burton on a Timex campaign in Prague, I got a call from, from Martin Scorsese's office to, to, to see if I would be interested in training DiCaprio and, and Daniel Day-Lewis in Knife Fight. Wow. Uh, I Vic, read that, yeah. Yeah, Vic Armstrong was the action director on, on Gangs of New York, and uh, his younger brother, Andy, I had worked with on a, on a couple of gigs, and he had recommended me as, 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 as the guy to, to train Leonardo and stuff like that. And uh, when, when I met with Leo here in Los Angeles and I started training him, I, I put some uh, choreography together for Marty. And then I got a call from Marty himself and he asked me if I could fly out to New York with Daniel. 
and I flew out to New York and I went with Daniel Day-Lewis and, and Michael Hossman and um, Marty pretty much on the spot from the stuff that I showed them on VHSs back then that I put together. He says, Dominic, you want to be the fight choreographer on this film and, and the coordinator for all the action oh, scenes. Wow. That's very and cool. I'm like, I'm like, wow, Martin Scorsese, one of the greatest alive, asking me if I want to be a coordinator on one of his movies. Of course I want to be. And the next thing I knew, I found myself in Rome for 10 months, you know, as the fight coordinator for Gangs of New York. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, while, that while we were on set, uh, and my work was pretty much done as a fight choreographer. We had blocked everything out. We had shot most of the fight scenes. Uh, Marty asked me, he says, Dominic, you got a good face, man. You should, you know, think about giving acting a shot. He goes, you want to be in some of the dead, dead uh, rabbit scenes with, with Leonardo as one of the gang members? And I'm like, sure. He says, so you can stay the extra two months until the movie is done, and then, and then you... And, I'm like, and then he put me in the movie. And then from, from that moment on, I pretty much knew that I wanted to pursue acting. I came uh-huh. back to Los Angeles, and uh, all the offers were coming in. After fight coordinating Gangs of New York, all the big offers came in. But I didn't enjoy the fight coordinating as much as the acting. And I decided to properly start taking acting class and, and, and really working on, on, the, on that craft. Because it's a skill like anything else. Mm, so, so Mark, how awesome is it to, to hear that? Uh, I think it's awesome to hear Martin Scorsese is the inspiration that truly got you to jump in with both feet into the acting acting realm. Um, in, I, I think that's pretty awesome. In a way, yeah. We, we were doing a scene during Gangs of New York, and in, in that specific scene, I was standing next to Leonardo, and uh, one of the ADs, after we did one take, he goes, Dom, can you look a little bit more mean in that scene when you're standing next to Leonardo? And the country yeah. told him, he said, hey, dude, you know Dom was in the trenches when you, were, when you were working on movies. He knows how to look mean without looking mean. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then Marty, Marty goes, and goes, yeah, look, 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 look at his face. Look at his face. You know how Marty talks. Yeah, <laughs> I said yeah. I guess I, I I don't have to make grimacing and 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 make sounds look mean. You can tell by a person's eyes what he's been through. Yeah. Oh wow! That, that, yeah, I got that a lot in in the mercenary with your character because you yeah. couldn't talk as much, so you could see a lot in your facial expressions on what you were trying to portray. I think it came across pretty good. I, I think thanks. so as well. Thank. I really appreciate that. It's always great to hear when some people get it, you know. Sometimes people write stuff on, on the internet or, or whatnot, and they compare an independent film to a $100 million budget film. And it's like, guys, you don't know how difficult it is to, for, for this movie to, to even see the day of light because everything was going against us. You're swimming upstream like a salmon, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, you, you've been mentioning off and on that you were in the Foreign Legion. Mm-hmm. What I, I know with Belgium and like most countries in Europe, you, you have to serve some time in the military mm-hmm. uh, and you did serve some time in the, in the Belgian military. What made you decide after your time there to go into the French Foreign Legion? Well, after I after I did my time in the Belgian military, which everyone has to do, it's man- mandatory. Uh, I, I was going to pursue a, a career as a martial artist because I, I was a junior champion in different martial arts disciplines. And then I 
I always loved full contact fighting, like kickboxing and Thai boxing and all of that stuff. But it didn't have that Budo spirit that I was looking for. And then I found this group uh, that was an elite karate Budo group that I became part of the Kundukan karate group. And I really thought that I was going to pursue uh, the, the fighting. But then I, I got hit by a car and, and it busted up my leg really bad and, and fractured my pelvis and ripped all the muscles in the back of my leg off. And I was in the hospital, I, I, I would say for about two months, I was really fucked up. And I got very depressed and suicidal because I didn't want to live a nine to five gig or, or life like that. I was not cut out for that. I wanted to live a warrior's life. And when the doctors told me I wouldn't be able to 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 to, to pursue the kickboxing and, and, and the martial arts and the full contact fighting because I couldn't get low kicks to the leg because of the bad break that I had. I got, I got really depressed and I started reading books a lot while, while I was in the hospital still. And I came across uh, a book about the Foreign Legion and I read about the famous battle in Cameroon, those 60 legionnaires that, that, that held off the whole Mexican military and fought until the last man. And when their last bullets were shot up, they put the bayonets on, on the guns when three of them were left over and charged into the cavalry. You know, and I, I, that spoke to me for some reason. Because since I was a kid, I always thought that I was possessed by, by, by a, da- a demon or something. I, I, like, I was so into martial arts and, and military history and stuff like that. That was the only thing that I was interested in when I was a kid. And I knew stuff by the time I was six or seven years old that I couldn't have learned in books. It's like I felt that I didn't belong because my parents are normal people. They're, they're upper middle class people and no one like in, in Europe or even the world. When I told my father after I got out of the hospital, my dad, I want to join the Foreign Legion. He's like, are you fucking nuts? They're all criminals. You know, they're, they're, they're killers. They're, they're mercenaries because people don't know what it really is. But the, the regular nine to five or regular job life didn't speak to me. And even in a weird sort of way, even before the accident, when I was doing the martial arts, it wasn't life and death martial arts was. You go into the ring, the worst thing happens to you, you get knocked up. Right. You go into a match, you get, you know, I really wanted to feel what life and death would feel like, those situations. And I read uh, the Book of Five Rings when I was a kid a lot by Miyamoto Musashi and I wanted to feel what it was like to face someone on, on, on a life and death circumstance not a sporting event and that's why in, I thought that the accident almost came as a blessing in a way because that propelled me to join the Foreign Legion and to feel those feelings that I, that I had unanswered all that time what um, I know you said you, you are a member of the two rep. Um, yes. Is it, is it the same philosophy like with the Marine Corps? Once a Marine, always Marine. Once a Legionnaire, always a Legionnaire. I guess. Yeah. People always say you, you, you can't take the Legionnaire out of the jungle, but you can't take the jungle or the desert out of the Legionnaire. Our motto after all is march or die. You know, marche as they say in French, you march or you die. And it's, it's a different mindset. I got to say, and, and the, the Legion, the way they train their soldiers, like, it, it's, it's more about endurance. It's not about the big muscles. Because we, we don't have the, the helicopter taxis to drop us off where the mission is. We walk in for many, many miles. And, and the best commandos in the two rep, they're smaller dudes. They're not, they're not big guys. They're like 
we had Nepalese guys that were Gurkhas that served in the Gurkha British regiments. They were extremely, extremely fit guys and extremely capable soldiers, but they were guys that were five foot five, 145 pounds. They were not guys that were 200 pounds and big muscles because in, in the two in the two rep, if you're 200 pounds and up, those big muscles, they need protein, they need fuel to function. And unlike the, the US military, sometimes you stay in the field for a month on 500 calories or less. Oh, wow. So you got to learn how to function with very little food. And mm. the, the, the American legionnaire that was a former ranger, I asked him one day, I'm like, what's the difference between the, the ranger regiment and here being in the two rep? And he looked at me and he says, Dom, he goes, in the American military, I, I learned to do enough with a lot. And in the Legion, I learned to do a lot with barely enough. Oh, and, wow. and, and he also told me, he says, no, no, and other guys too from British military, ex-paratrooper, SPS, Royal Command Marines, and I spoke, they said, no one marches like the Legion does. It's insanity. Yeah. We, we, we had a young Nepalese kid that that uh, he was a Sherpa in Nepal carrying shit up for travelers that go up to Mount Everest. And he, he was telling me he was even carrying the people's oxygen in his pack for them up, up to Everest. By the time he was 17 years old, he had carried shit up for wealthy people that go and, and hike Everest, you know, three times. And that was before he came to the Legion. His father had passed away. And uh, he had to take over his father's job to support the family, wearing his father's old shoes, carrying shit up Everest. And uh, then after that, when that wasn't making the money that to, to support the whole family, he decided to, go, to come to France and join the Foreign Legion. And he was one of the fittest individuals I've ever met. Little dude, too. If you're able to talk about it, what was one of the most um, interesting missions you ever did in the Foreign Legion? I... I I think what was life-changing for me was was the mission in Rwanda, was an intervention in Rwanda right before the genocides went full scale over there. Yeah. And we, we were sent in to get all the foreign nationals out that worked, you know, at, at the embassies and, 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 and stuff like that. And uh, we, we were really only there for about, I think, 10, 10 days, I think we were there. It was an in-and-out kind of gig. And we were supposed to parachute uh, over the airport, but the, the airport had been taken over. So instead of parachuting, uh, we just flew touching the ground almost and, and opened the back uh, gate. I forgot what it's called, the C-130. And we jumped out that way. We took over the airport. And then next we took over the international school where a school teacher just had been uh, murdered and raped mm. and, and all the kids mm. up. And then we got all the foreign nationals out, uh, people from Canada too, but mostly French people and Belgian people and all of these people. We, we, we got all of them out, put them on planes and, and got them out of there as quickly as possible. But what really stayed with me was at certain places, we would go and pick people up at embassies or, or at hotels, different places. And we would leave sometimes with trucks that were half full, knowing that the people that we left behind that were from Rwanda, we knew they were going to get slaughtered and there was nothing we could do about it. You know, so we left with trucks that were half full, leaving these people in my mind that always that messed with my mind 
that there was no, I was at that time I was a I was a team leader of of, of uh, eight, eight guys I was a corporal team leader and uh, I realized there was nothing I could do about that no matter how bad I wanted to bring these people to but it was out of my hands and that's why after the five years in the legion I didn't re up in the legion and I became an independent soldier. Because the difference to me between an independent soldier as a mercenary, a mercenary does it for money. An independent soldier, he picks his jobs by the moral code he believes in. I wasn't in it for the money. I had to believe in the code of what I was doing. And I think that shifted when I was in Rwanda, you know, leaving all these people. I was part of the fourth company, the fourth section in the two rep. And... Uh, after we got all the foreign nationals out and security international airport and all of that stuff, we left. And the, the UN sent in peacekeeping troops. Ten powers from, from the Belgium uh, military got captured by Hutu rebel soldiers. And they cut their Achilles tendons with machetes so they could not run away. And then they were castrated and died choking on their own genitalia. Oh. That's after we left there. And then the Belgian military took all their military out after these 10 guys got killed over there like that. And then the blue helmets went in. But when the blue helmets were sent in, they were standing on one corner while three blocks down, people were getting slaughtered up. Well, they were because blue blue helmets, they don't engage. They just to secure to, to secure the area that they're in. But three blocks down, people were getting slaughtered like dogs. Oh, wow. After the Belgian government immediately retrieved all of their troops and soon after that the most rapid genocide and mass slaughter happened the tutsi twa and even moderate hutus were killed by the hutu-led government interahamwe rebel militias and in a hundred days a hundred million tutsi were killed in that conflict from there the second rep we were straight away sent to chad where a civil war was breaking out and the Habre's militias took over in Anjamana, and later on Idris Debi unseated Habre, and the second rep was sent to disarm all the scattered militias that fought alongside that guy. So from from that first moment in Central Afrique, it was Chad, Rwanda, and back to Chad, like back to back to back within seven months. So at what point did you decide uh, to write your book, um, The Iron Circle? Uh, when I first came to the United States, I had, I had met a writer called Rick Reaver, and we were working at the time on a script together called The Forever War, which was about this... Uh, Holocaust survivor that after the Second World War is over, he joins the French Foreign Legion to find the Nazi that murdered his family. Because a lot of the Nazis after the Second World War, they would they would join the French Foreign Legion and then the Legion sent those guys off to Dieng Beng Thu, which was the French Vietnam, right? And uh, I was writing with Rick and Rick said, man, your backstory is so cool. You should, you should write a book about this. And that's how we, Rick and I wrote the book. And originally it was all fact. But then when other writers came in, they took a lot of liberties on how they spun my story. And all of the martial arts stuff, they pretty much, they turned it into like a B-movie story. You know, I don't know why they did that. But thank God they didn't touch on any of the Legion stuff. They left that the way Rick and I wrote it. Because back then there was nothing on the internet about the Legion. There was no, you had to read a whole bunch of books to know about the Legion. If you read 10 different books, 10, 10 different guys would give you different accounts of what it was like. So they mm-hmm. didn't touch on that and kept the, all of the Legion stuff legit and the way we wrote it. But like I said, you know, they changed a lot of the a lot of the martial arts stuff and kind of made it Hollywood, which I was very disappointed about. I'm sure they did that just because they thought it would sell more copies. 
I, I'm sure that's so. So if we were to get the book now, most everything about the Foreign Legion would, would be true to, true to fact. Yes, sir. The Legion stuff, they didn't touch much at all. And, and some of my childhood stuff is pretty, pretty on. But a lot of the martial arts stuff, they got names wrong, all, all kinds of stuff. They, you know, the, the Budo group that I was with, the Kundokan Karate group, we didn't fight guys from other styles when we did our research meets where we competed against each other. And they, they were research meets, not championships or the way. And we didn't fight from other style, guys from other styles. We were all very proficient in old school judo, jiu-jitsu, and, and bare-knuckle full contact karate. And Mikio-sensei, he blended that stuff together. You know, similar to what uh, John Blooming was doing in Holland. John Blooming was putting Kyokushin and old school judo together and created this whole free fighting thing. But the Kundukan group, we were like that, but we practiced Budo code spirit thinking, but with heavy full contact sparring. So your recommendation would be get the book, but only read up through the Legion and then put it the down whole, afterwards? The, the whole book is still a good read. It's an entertaining read, but take the martial arts stuff with a grain of salt because they made it very Hollywood, you know, right. like yeah. they, they turned it into like a Hollywood B movie. We were in fighting no guys. We were all wearing karate geese. It was full contact, similar to what back then the Portuguese and Brazilians were doing with Vale Todo or Bando in Burma. But we wore a gi, we were respectful and it was full contact, but we didn't fight guys from other styles. And you had to be invited in like a gang almost. It was a very small group, similar to now the sensei that I train with now today, Komi Hiroshi sensei, uh, we created a Godojuku group together. And it's a similar thing where you have to be invited in. It's, it's, they're non-commercial groups. And, and sen, sensei Gomio, my current sensei, he was the top student of Chujikawa sensei, who was a ninth dan directly under Kenma Mabuni sensei, who wow. created Shikyo Budo Karate. Oh, wow. So I was always very fortunate to find the right teachers in, 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 in just, I don't know, by luck, maybe preordained, whatever it was. For, for someone who was suicidal before joining the Legion, everything seems like it's fallen in place since. And uh, I, I think it, I'm happy now to, to know you and to have this chat. And, and now looking at your body of work, it's going to have me even more intrigued on what you've done with those films. And uh, I'm going to say personally, thank you for, for doing what you've done. Thank, thank you, sir. It, it, it's, it's, uh, it's always very touching when there's people out there that get it, that get the, the path, how long this was. And, and like I said, still today, I don't have an agent or manager. It's like in, in, Especially Hollywood, the way it is today with the political correctness, it's very tough for a guy that looks like me to get, you know, to play the hero. Mm, yeah. So are you, you're, you're wanting to do more the hero roles or, or are you wanting, or are you I, okay doing a, I, a, a I, heavy? I love playing bad guys, uh, but it has to be the right bad, bad guy. And I would really like to do the mercenary part too, or parlay that into to a series, even for like, you know, streets. Uh, yeah, awesome. that would be great. That would um, be awesome. That would be. I'm working on the mercenary part too on the script right now, and the Max character finds himself this time in Chechnya, where he's kind of working at an orphanage, and and all of the people. 
and the kids that are at the orphanage that are man- mentally disabled, they get killed by jihadis that come in and they take all the other people that they can use as slaves. So from then, that moment on, the Max character goes after these guys that took the people at the, at, at the orphanage. I cannot wait to see this film. Yeah. This will be awesome. Well, I know um, you've been on with us for quite a bit of time, and we thank you for, for joining us. Where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, I have a Dominic Vandenberg. It's an official Facebook and they, they can read stories about me there and see a lot of pictures of me in the Legion and fighting in Thailand and all kinds of stuff. And they can leave comments there. I try my best always to respond to people when they reach out to me. And uh, yeah, and if there's people out there that love poetry too, they can follow me at The Legionnaire. It's on YouTube. I post a lot of my poetry. Excellent. I'm going to have to go subscribe oh, wow. to the. I subscribe to your Facebook page. I'm going to have to go subscribe to your YouTube page now. I, I'm excited for that. I always found solace in poetry for some reason. You know, it's it's like when I put the pen to paper, all 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 the bad voices in my head they disappear. Kind of. It's a good outlet. Yeah. Uh, outside of working on uh, pre pre production on Mercenary Two, do you have any other projects coming up that you're working on? We have a couple things that are in the pipelines, but nothing that I really can concretely talk about. Okay. I, I always feel like I jinx things when I talk about it too early. <laughs> no you know, problem. I've done a couple of times where I said, oh, we're working on this. And then, it, you know, in the, in the movie industry at the level, at especially independent movement level, you know, things fall apart very quickly. You have mm-hmm. three of them that are irons in the fire, but maybe one works out or not. It's not like big studio filmmaking. And more and more, there is no more independent filmmaking. Like my film, The Mercenary, was truly an independent film that I funded by by money that was hard-earned. A lot of independent films now that that come out, that they are funded and still come to Hollywood that are 10 or $20 million budgets. If you gave a budget like that, I, I would create a real masterpiece. Yeah. Well, perhaps someday it'll happen. I hope so. And, and we'll start the pitch now. Dominic Vandenberg for the next Expendables film. Let's get, <laughs> a, let's get a real mercenary in with the mercenaries. I like it. Uh, that would be great. Well, thank you for coming on and joining us this week. It, it, it's This is awesome and definitely had us look at the movie at a, in a light that we, we did not expect to go in. Yeah, I can't wait to watch it again under this new light. I know. So thank you very much, sir, and thank right. you very much for giving me this platform. I I remember things like that. I I'm just so glad you were willing to come on and, and join a show like us for a night. Uh, this was fun. Uh, like I said, it was yeah. going to go down an interesting direction, and I, I had a blast with it all. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed talking with you, and uh, I'm now at that point. I can't wait to meet you in person, and hopefully one day I will get to meet you in person. <laughs> I'll do it in studio one of these days, hopefully in the future. Excellent. Well, actually, we're we're not in studio because I'm in Florida. Derek's in Massachusetts. But um, I think we talked a little bit before show. I work at Walt Disney World, so hopefully one day I'll see you there if you ever come down for a visit. Sounds good. I would definitely love to, to meet you and shake your hand. Thank you, the, sir. The, really the, appreciate it. Um, and I can't wait to see more mercenary if you're if you're planning a series or a franchise with it. I think it'd be great. 
Um, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> and, and, you know, I almost, yeah, I almost want to say, I think, go ahead, Derek. I was going to say, I think people definitely need to, uh, to check out the movie. It's, it, it is yeah, really, yeah. really good. Yeah. I see. I almost like the idea we were talking a little, a little bit ago, of this being a streaming series on like Netflix or, or Hulu mm-hmm. even. And yeah, doing a, cool. where yeah, it's almost that Kung Fu meets Expendables um, meets, um, how, I can't I can't think of a, a redemption film. Well, The Wandering Warrior is a formula that, that has always worked. Whether you look at Kane in the Kung Fu series or Zatoichi right. in Japan, The Blind Swordsman, that was the longest running show in Japan over there. So I think it's time for something like that, but in a modern setting and, and a different original story, unique story. The, Definitely, Quantum Leap was the other film I was going to add to this, where <laughs> Mercy, where the Max character is a different persona each week, but mm-hmm. dealing with a a mercenary type role, or um, um, yeah, I just went blank in the direction. Is is it cool before we uh, before we wrap this up? Can I read one of my poems to you guys? Yes, go for it. It's, a, it's very short. If that's cool with you guys, oh, sure. it's our honor. Okay. <clears throat> This poem is called Disappear. Like melting snow, we all return and seep into the ground. When we return to ashes and dust, we're blown away with the wind. No one can escape the finality of our fate and death. Yet how many men have you met, not corrupted by the spoils of life? The in-between is the finding of our purpose in life. To leave a legacy that is worth remembering. As you walk that road in sadness, joy, and hopefully love along the way. I was disappeared. Oh, wow. And you said that you, you are working on a book with your poetry in it. Yes, sir. It's called Beast, and I, I have about 120 of them. I started writing poetry while I was still in the Legion. Uh, I was reading Japanese haiku poems a lot, and I also discovered an American poet called Alan Seeger, who died in the French Foreign Legion in World War One, fighting with them. And uh, actually, they use a lot of his poetry now on, on, on games, on video games and stuff. Alan Seeger, you should look him up. He's a really interesting cat. Writing it down right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, keep us posted on when, when the book becomes available. Yeah, I will. Because yeah. um, so. I know I will definitely pick up a copy of that as well. Well, thank you for, for joining us thank this week. Uh, it's been an honor and definitely a pleasure. And um, I'm just going to say until next time. Want to know more? So, um, the bad crowd you've been hanging out with is a science fiction club? This has been a Weeby Geeks production.